everyone. Hi. Um, my name is Taylor Dunker, and I'm the president of the Chapman Republicans. Aside from being the best party on campus, our mission is to spread conservative values on campus and contribute to nationwide and local conservative causes. We are so excited you all are here, and I would like to extend an additional welcome to the thousands watching through YAF's YouTube and Facebook page. We'd like to especially thank the Lincoln Club, our Student Government Association, Young America's Foundation, and all of our other generous donors for making this event possible. Born in Mumbai, India, Dinesh D'Souza came to the U.S. As an, ex as an exchange student and graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Dartmouth College in 1983. Since then, D'Souza has had a prominent career as a writer, scholar, and public intellectual, and has also become a renowned filmmaker with four top-grossing documentaries, including 2016, Obama's America, and Death of a Nation. A former policy an analyst in the Reagan White House, D'Souza also served as John M. Olin Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the Robert and Karen Rishwain Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He served as the president of the King's College in New York City from 2010 to, to 2012. D'Souza is a prolific writer and has authored 18 books, including New York Times bestsellers, A Liberal Education, What's So Great About America, and many others. In 2010, D'Souza wrote The Roots of Obama's Rage, which was described as the most influential political book of the year and set off a firestorm, which ultimately led to D'Souza's first film, 2016, Obama's America. The film quickly rose to the second highest grossing political documentary of all time, easily surpassing Michael Moore's Sicko and Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. <laughs> D'Souza continued his call for thoughtful patriotism with his 2014 number one New York Times bestselling book, America, Imagine a World Without Her. The wild success of the book led to a film with the same name, which opened in theaters on the 4th of July, 2014, with an A-plus cinema score rating. D'Souza's latest film, Death of a Nation, builds on a successful career and takes on progressive big lies, finally proving once and for all that the real party of fascism and racism is now and always been the Democratic Party. One of D'Souza's favorite venues for debates and speeches has always been college campuses. During the past 25 years, he has, he has appeared at hundreds of colleges and universities and spoken with hundreds of thousands of students in these live settings. D'Souza has been named one of America's most influential conservative thinkers by the New York Times Magazine. The World Affairs Council lists him as one of the nation's 500 leading authorities on international issues, and Newsweek cited him as one of the country's most prominent Asian Americans. D'Souza's articles have appeared in virtually every major magazine and newspaper, and D'Souza appears regularly on America's top national news programs. Please join me in welcoming Dinesh D'Souza. Thank you very much. This is awesome. Really happy to be here. Thank you for being here. Thank you to Young America's Foundation for helping to put on this event. Everybody who's, um, who's watching live online. Uh, I, was, um, I was 17 years old when I first saw America. I got off the plane uh, for a connection in New York City. I kind of looked around. 
Uh, I could see, actually, f as we descended, I could see the New York skyline. And, uh, wow, a very strange feeling came over me because I, I knew that my whole life was going to be different from, from that moment on. Uh, I felt I was moving from the margin of the world to the center. And even though I was a teenager, I understood that if I stayed in America, um, I would be, to a degree, almost inconceivable to me before, I would be the architect of my own destiny. I, I could be in this country the, in the driver's seat of my own life. Uh, in America, your destiny isn't given to you, it's, it's constructed by you. And this, of course, is, this was my introduction to the American dream. Now, interestingly, as far as I know, no other country really has this kind of a dream. Uh, there's, no, there's no Indian dream. Uh, I'm not aware of a Chinese dream. If there's a French dream, I don't think we want to know what it is. <laughs> but, but hey, there is, there is this American dream of bettering your life, uh, of prosperity, yes, but not only prosperity. Prosperity is actually a part of the dream. Uh, I have an acquaintance in Mumbai, India, who has been, well, he seems to be, seems to have been trying to come to America for about 20 years. And the poor dude has never been able to get a visa. And um, finally I said to him, I said, hey, um, why are you so eager to come to America? He goes, Dinesh, I really want to move to a country where the poor people are fat. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's part of America. Um, the abundance of America. I, I lived with a host family in my first year in Arizona. And they're like, Dinesh, we got to take you to see the, the great sights of America. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, the Grand Canyon. And then we're going to take you to, the, to Tombstone, Arizona, which was the site of the great gunfight at the OK Corral. And I'm like, guys, you know, that all sounds good. But if you want to know my idea of sightseeing, take me to a grocery store. I mean, I want to see 17 types of cheese and 80 types of ice cream. So I understood right away that, you know, the rich guy lives well anywhere in the world. If you got a lot of money, you can do really well pretty much anywhere. But what's startling about America is the, the abundant life, the opportunity it provides, not to the rich guy, but to the ordinary guy, even to the, even to the somewhat lazy ordinary guy. I noticed that in America, even the guy who's a little bit slow and a little bit lazy still has central air conditioning and two cars. And sometimes in California here, you know, a little pool in the backyard. So I'm like, wow, that's, that speaks for a country, the kind of life it makes available to the ordinary fellow. Well, we have not been living in ordinary America in the last few years, certainly not politically. Uh, the environment, turbulent, virtually insane. Surreal in some ways, with a, with a surreal cast of characters. I mean, certainly from an entertainment point of view, it's top notch. 
It's incredibly entertaining. And, um, but it has also been politically, I would say, vacuous, right? I mean, we've had one, one crazy episode after, no policy debate at all. We went from Charlottesville and white supremacy to the Mueller investigations to the Ukraine and impeachment. Really hard in a way to be a speaker and talk about a substantive issue because talk about what? We haven't had a substantive debate on healthcare. We haven't had one on even immigration. So the reason I chose this topic of socialism is because finally, finally, almost at the end of Trump's first term, the clouds begin to part and we have a big issue coming to the center, socialism. And it's an issue that, well, well, first of all, I've had a little experience with it myself because I grew up in socialist India. India was a socialist country. And during that whole time that India was a socialist country, and I, I, for me, it's a vague set of memories. I mean, we had to stand in line to get a ration card because you had to ration the amount of sugar you could buy or rice or, or cooking oil. And the corruption that kind of seeps into every aspect of India, always paying somebody under, these are my childhood memories. This was Indian socialism. And in fact, when I came to America, kind of fleeing Indian socialism, you might say, the basic image of, of India in America was India was the begging bowl of the world. And some of you remember, your parents probably told you when you were younger, listen, Johnny, you better eat your food because there are millions of starving people in India. Now, interestingly, you probably don't say that to your kids. In fact, what you probably say to your kids is something more like this. Johnny, you better study really hard because there are millions of Indians waiting to take your job. <laughs> so, India, India, has, India has had a kind of an evolution, an evolution away from socialism. My wife, Debbie, who's here in the audience, is from Venezuela. Uh, hey, Debbie, you want to say hi? So Venezuela, and I'll, I'll come back to this, has gone in the opposite direction. A once prosperous country, um, ultimately thick with resources, a tremendous amount of uranium and gold and minerals. Um, once the richest country in South America with the fourth highest per capita income in the world. Uh, a country that is actually dripping with oil, in which there are now gasoline lines, uh, shortages. And so what you've seen is the way in which socialism kills, I mean, kills the country, destroys a state, makes it ultimately into. And this is the experience of the 20th century. Um, it's really odd to me that we're even talking about socialism because socialism appeared to have been decisively refuted, discredited, to use Reagan's terms, tossed on the ash heap of history. We thought it was done. In fact, I would say if one takes a little bit of a longer view that socialism is the most discredited idea in the world after slavery. Slavery is probably number one and socialism is number two. And if you look at the deepest works on socialism, it is, they are presented in Hayek, for example, The Road to Serfdom, kind of a telling title of Solzhenitsyn's work. Socialism is presented as a form of slavery. Now, interestingly, today, 
Well, I guess we do have certain forms of slavery in the world. We have sex slavery. We have certain forms of forced captivity. But there's, as far as I know, no party in the world that is the pro-slavery party. We don't have a major party, certainly not in the United States, that says, you know, the thing about slavery, guys, is it was, it was a really good idea. The implementation was always poor. <laughs> but we have an idea for how to get it right this time. This time, we're going to do slavery right. <laughs> Nobody says that. You can't say that. You would be immediately carried out in a straitjacket. But with socialism, people do say that. They say, we know that 50 years ago, 60% of the real estate on the planet was controlled by regimes calling themselves socialist. This is not just the entire Soviet bloc encompassing Eastern Europe, Romania, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. This is not most of South America was socialist. Almost all of Africa went socialist in the aftermath of colonialism. Half of Asia, including, of course, China and India, the two largest countries, socialist. So really, more than half the human beings on the planet were living under a regime, in a sense, named after Karl Marx. Unbelievable. No man, except perhaps Jesus Christ, has had that kind of influence in history. And then this whole thing imploded. Boom. The Soviet Union collapsed. The Communist Party abolished itself. Eastern Europe disintegrated. The Berlin Wall came down. All the countries that were socialist began to run away from socialism, leaving only a few isolated outposts, North Korea, Cuba, now Venezuela. And that's pretty much it. That's all that's left, really. So socialism was vanquished, and it was vanquished by history, and it was vanquished by experience. Very rarely in the world can you actually compare two different systems to see which one works better. If I were to compare, say, what was happening in France with, let's just say, the Ming Dynasty in China, different people, different cultures, it's really hard to compare. But with socialism, we actually have really good comparisons. We have North and South Korea. North Korea, socialist. South Korea, capitalist. Look at the result. South Korea is 50 times richer than North Korea. People in South Korea live for 10 years longer. So in every measure of human welfare, you can see capitalism's doing better. You look at East and West Germany, the same thing, same people. Same background, same language, same culture, just to rival economic systems. So there you are. History rarely gives us this kind of test case. So you would think that the argument was settled. But now in the 21st century, certainly if the collapse of socialism was the big story of the last century, you would have to say the revival of socialism, not just in some remote outpost, but here in America represents one of the biggest stories of the 21st century. And the first question you have to ask is, is, how is this even possible? How is this even possible? And how is it possible that, well, the actual socialist gang is, is kind of a small and, and amusing crew? You have AOC. Now, AOC is, well, I got to say, AOC you know, I don't underestimate AOC because she has kind of a vivid way of putting things. And she also has that permanently startled look in her eyes, <laughs> which is really interesting to watch. 
it's almost as if, she, as if a light goes on and then she speaks. And, and what, she, what comes out of her mouth is amazing. I mean, it's stuff that is, Miami will not be here in five years, right? Things like that. Now, obviously no one believes it because think about it. If Miami is not gonna be here in five years, and if there was really data behind that, or, or let's say Miami was not gonna be here in 20 years, and there was data behind that, everybody would have access to that data, and suddenly you'd notice that the price of coastal properties in Miami would start falling. <laughs> not even if this was a certainty, if this, there was a 50% chance that this could occur, you would start seeing a, 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 a drop in real estate values in Miami. And sellers would panic, and buyers would jump for their opportunity, and real estate agents would know it. But the truth of it is, nothing is happening in Miami. And what that means is that sellers know it's bogus, and buyers know it's bogus, and real estate agents know it's bogus. Everybody knows it's bogus. The Obamas know it's bogus, because they just spent $15 million to buy coastal property in Martha's Vineyard. They know it's bogus. That's AOC. Then you have, um, you have Ilhan Omar. Uh, a more, in, in, to, me, to my mind, a more intriguing character. In fact, a little bit more of a global figure. Uh, AOC is not really a global figure. Uh, AOC is basically a bartender. <laughs> but, but Ilhan Omar is, inspires people all over the world. She inspires Muslims all over the world. Why? First of all, she's a woman from the desert. She's poor. She's a person of color. She's a woman. In other words, when you think of, of all the different claims of intersectionality, she's got the gender card, she's got the race card, she's got the desert card. She pretty much has it all. I mean, she'd completely finish the job if she was missing a leg. Because then she'd, have, she'd also have the, the handicap card. So she's sort of, I'd give her three out of four, but three out of four is pretty impressive. I mean, I only have the person of color card. I'm one out of four. Ilhan Omar. Bernie Sanders, I don't know what to say about. Bernie Sanders reminds me of the story I read as a kid about Rip Van Winkle. Rip Van Winkle went into a 20-year nap. He felt he was in hibernation. Then he woke up and he was like, wow, right? That's Bernie, wow, you know, Uber, Airbnb, cell phones. He can't really believe it. And so you've got this socialist crew, but, but we shouldn't be fooled because this socialist, this socialist gang of four, if you will, they're not the threat. They're not the problem. What's interesting is how they're able to set the dials for the whole political left and for the Democratic Party. So you have a major party whose cues are being delivered by the small gang. Uh, notice, for example, all the candidates always pivot left because they have to hold the base. And the way to hold the base is to move in the most decisive way toward, toward, social, toward the socialist agenda. So that, to me, is the larger issue, which is that for the first time, really in American history, we have a major party that is pulling in the direction of socialism. Now, I'm not saying they're all socialists, but think of it this way. If you think of a spectrum with free market capitalism on one side of the tug of war and full-scale socialism on the other side, 
Ask yourself this, in which direction are all the Democratic, including all the fellows who dropped out, including Hickenlooper and everybody else, which direction are they pulling in? Are they pulling in the free market direction or are they pulling in the socialist direction? And the answer is obvious. They are all, even Biden. Now with Biden these days, you, you're not really sure, <laughs> right? Because Biden's, Biden's cadence is really pretty unbelievable. He goes from substantive policy issues to his own hairy legs <laughs> without evidently missing a beat. And he also knows people who otherwise the rest of us only recognize from cartoons. His friends have names like Boom Boom and Corn Pop. And he's currently conducting, I kid you not, something called the No Malarkey Tour. No. Recently he goes, verily, verily, sir, that is what I am doing. A man from a different century. Okay, now, to take this socialism seriously, which we should, if I were on the left, I'm not, but if I were, I would defend it in this way. I would say first, capitalism sucks. Capitalism is not doing what it used to do. Forget about socialism. The inequalities of capitalism now are blatant, are inexcusable. What is it that entrepreneurs do now that they didn't do in the 1970s? And if they're doing the same thing, running companies, why is it the case that in the 1970s they were paid, I don't know, a hundred times what the average worker was paid, but now they're paid a thousand times more. In fact, Ilan Omar tweeted recently, she goes, the, av the salary of the CEO of Walmart, $23 million. The salary of the mean or average worker at Walmart, $23,000. One thousandth of what the CEO makes. So number one, we've got a problem with capitalism. We have to do something about that. So whether or not you're for socialism, the first argument for the left is capitalism has a problem. The second argument for, of the socialists is, is that, guys, we're not following the Venezuelan model. We're not trying to become like North Korea. We recognize that there have been authoritarian, despotic forms of socialism in the world. What we want to do is we have a much nicer model, Scandinavian socialism. So you, Dinesh, have been trying to tell us that socialism doesn't work anywhere in the world. It does work in the land where everybody is named Sven. <laughs> the Nordic countries, the Nordic countries. And Sven is not Hugo Chavez. He's not Nicolas Maduro. Sven is actually kind of a really nice guy. First of all, he's fashionably metrosexual. He goes, to, he goes to work in a suit on a bicycle. He carries a lady's handbag. All his furniture is from Ikea. He still rocks to ABBA. Sven, it's very appealing. And people go, Whatever you think about Sven, he might be into some weird sexual stuff. We won't talk about that right now. But he's a really nice guy. Sven socialism is our model, not Venezuelan socialism. So socialism does work somewhere. Hey, it works in Norway, works in Sweden, works in Denmark, works in Finland. 
and those are our models. And finally, I would say, if I was on the left, that there's a new form of socialism in America, very different from other forms. And that socialism I'm going to call identity socialism. It's a marriage of socialism with identity politics. Now, you have to realize that this actually represents something very new, because for Marx and for traditional socialism, classic socialism, if you want to call it that, society is divided into only two groups. Let's call them the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, i.e. the workers and the capitalists, or to, to put it more crudely, the rich and the poor. There's really only one line dividing society. That's the class line. That's the only line that matters. Everything else spins out of that. That's Marx. But we now have a socialism that says, actually, Marx kind of took too limited a view of things. In fact, society is divided 10 different ways. Not only the rich and the poor, but how about the black and the white? How about the, how about the gender line that separates men from women? How about the line that separates legal from illegal immigrants? How about the line that separates the straight from the gay? In other words, what we have is we have all this identity politics over here. And so what the left is doing now, their socialism, is to take the old Marxist class division and multiply it by producing eight other types of division and bringing them all together. And so the Democratic coalition then, for 2020, becomes a coalition of self-styled identifying and, and presumably victimized or oppressed groups. The Democrats are hoping we can put enough of those people together, adding them up, that we're going to get a majority. And here we come to the distinctive feature of American socialism. It's democratic socialism. It's not trying to install a dictator. The idea is, if we can get 51% of the people, then they have every moral right to tell the other 49% what to do. That's democracy. Now, the first question you have to ask is, is, it is that democracy? I mean, let's look at this group right here in this room. If we were to take a vote and assemble a majority of 51% of people in this room, and they decide, let us now confiscate the property of all the others in the room, let's say the 49, or it doesn't matter, let's say we have a majority of 99%, and they decide there's this one guy that we all want to gang up on, we're just going to go into his house and take his stuff, or her stuff. Would that be right? Is that morally legitimate? Is that what democracy means? So right away we have to sort of ask, where are we, where, where are we trying to go here? What is the objective? Almost all our rhetoric in the public square, to me, is confusing or deceitful. The other day I turn on the television, and I see this fellow Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang keeps calling himself a really smart Asian. But I don't know. I mean, to me, he's one of the dumber Asian Americans <laughs> in the country. And um, anyway. Yang says he keeps, he keeps saying, Dinesh, I want to give you $1,000 a month. And I'm thinking, this Yang fellow must be loaded, man. He wants to give me $1,000 a month until I die. And he's making the same promise to everyone else. I think, well, 
Andrew Yang's pretty well off, but where's he getting the money? Turns out it's not his money. He's got all these schemes for confiscatory taxation and value-added taxes and this and that. So the bottom line of it is this is his deal. Dinesh, I'm going to tax you five grand because you're in perhaps one of the upper brackets. I'm going to take the $5,000 and then I'm going to give you one. So then I say to myself, wow, well, first of all, if you're supposed to be a smart Asian who knows math, why do that? Why don't you just tax me $4,000? But see, the key to it is Andrew, that doesn't work for Andrew Yang, because he knows that if he did that, I'd be a little bit pissed. Andrew Yang would become the guy who's putting his hand into my, Andrew Yang wants to be my benefactor. He wants me to be thankful that he is giving me the $1,000. And so smuggled into this seeming economic distribution scheme is a vote-buying scheme whose beneficiary is a single man, Andrew Yang. That's what he gets out of it. But the, so while he keeps talking about, I want to give you this and I want to give you that, what he never asks is what he wants us to give him, which is our political loyalty, our vote. Now, <clears throat> Medicare for all. This is another, well, I turn on the TV, 60 minutes, I see this guy, I even remember his name, Joe Babinski. This is a fellow who's in med school, and he goes, man, med school is really hard. He goes, it would be really nice if I didn't have to worry about my student loans. It'd be really nice if med school were free. He's like, then I can really focus on my studies. Then I could really be a great doctor. And here's Leslie Stahl, you know, of CBS kind of nodding with appreciative idiocy, the kind of familiar, vacant look on her face. And I'm thinking to myself, ask him the question, ask him the question, but she never does. It was too much to hope for, but the question is really simple. Hey, Mr. Babinski, if we give you a free medical education, let me ask you this, when you become a doctor, are you going to work for free? But, she never asked, and maybe she didn't need to ask because we know the answer. No, this was not his scheme at all. His scheme is free education. I'm going to ask a whole bunch of people, including working class people, who are making 12 bucks an hour to pay for my expensive medical school education so I can then go around driving a Lexus and have a really nice house and live at a doctor's standard of living. That's my scheme. In short, I'm running a racket and I'm trying to get people poorer than myself, poorer in terms of expected lifetime earnings, to bail me out. Even though, given those expected lifetime earnings, I can most certainly afford to pay for my medical school. It's merely a problem of the actuarial tables. Now, I want to talk for a moment about Scandinavia. Uh, and zoom into this a little bit more than is customary because Scandinavia has become sort of the model. European social insurance. And the question becomes, how do they actually do it in Scandinavia? What is the Scandinavian model actually? Is it socialism? Is it not socialism? Well, the answer is Scandinavia is divided into two parts. They divide the creation of wealth from the distribution of wealth. Two Different things. The Scandinavians are very capitalist about wealth creation. And they are fairly socialist about wealth distribution. Let's talk about each of those for a moment. Wealth creation. Does Scandinavia have minimum wage laws? No. 
Does Scandinavia have high confiscatory corporate tax rates? No. They're no higher than the United States. Does Scandinavia impose financial transaction fees of the kind that Bernie Sanders has proposed? No. Does Scandinavia have a wealth tax? No. They tried some wealth taxes in Sweden, they got rid of them. Does Scandinavia uh, have a propose an estate tax? Do they have estate taxes? When you die, do they take half of your estate? No. You can leave all of it, all of it, to your kids. So what you have in Scandinavia is that we should not screw with the goose that lays the golden eggs. We need to create the wealth first. Notice how different that is, by the way, from the mood of the left here. Their idea is to raid, is right away to impose all kinds of squeezes, regulatory squeezes, tax squeezes, wealth squeezes on the rich. The Scandinavians never demonize the rich. Have you ever heard of anyone denouncing the fat cats, the 1%? Look at that Sven, he's a Sven that has more than this Sven. No, they don't do that. They're all in it together. They're all Sven. So the point I'm trying to get at here, and it's a very important one, is that Scandinavia operates by what can be called the politics of the tribe. Politics of the tribe. They rely on tribal solidarity. We're all in it together. So once we've created the wealth, then we can impose schemes to distribute it. Interestingly, Scandinavia tried universal basic income, at least Finland did, an experiment, didn't like it, dumped it, got rid of it. The other thing about the Scandinavians is that because we're all in it together, we're all, if you will, the descendants of the Vikings, we have this tribal solidarity, two things follow from that. First, it's really hard for us to take people who are not named Sven. In other words, it's really hard for us to take people who are named things like Dinesh. An outsider can't become a Viking all that easily. And by the way, this is true not just in Scandinavia. It's true all over Europe. It's really hard for a Pakistani to become an Englishman. It's really hard for a Turk to become a German. It's really hard for an Algerian to become a Frenchman. Those countries, because they define themselves in terms of birth and blood, they can't assimilate. There's no melting pot. Diversity is considered a weakness and a bad idea. And the Scandinavians, by and large, are turning against it. In Norway, they say very clearly, no economic refugee is permitted in Norway. They also, they also do not hesitate to impose differential conduct, differential governmental treatment of outsiders. In fact, the term that means outsider or illegal in Sweden is just a term that essentially means non-Nordic. If you're not Nordic, you're an outsider. End of story. That's a very important point because our country is based on diversity, right? Can you imagine? Notice something very interesting. Bernie Sanders has taken lots of pilgrimages. He's done a pilgrimage, his honeymoon to the Soviet Union. He's done pilgrimages to Cuba. Pilgrimages to Nicaragua. He's visited pretty much every socialist country except one. He's never been to Scandinavia. He's Scandinavian. So think about it. Why is no one going to Scandinavia? Why, why, does why doesn't Bernie get together with Elizabeth Warren and they make a trip to Scandinavia? And they pose with a bunch of Scandinavians. And if they did this in the winter, it, th you'd, you, this is what you'd see. First of all, a sea of white people. 
with white hair and white parkas against a white background. Maybe a, a, a solitary polar bear prancing around in the background. So it's, an, it's like an all-white picture. Doesn't really work well on the presidential campaign trail. That's why they don't go to Scandinavia. That's not their model. The second reason Scandinavia is not their model, and they know it, is the Scandinavian model is really simple. Everyone benefits, and everyone has to pay. In other words, this is not a soak the rich scheme. The highest tax rates in Scandinavia, 60, 70, and 80%, kick in on the middle class. If you make $50,000 in Scandinavian countries, you're in the 50% tax bracket. Not only are you at that rate, there's a 25% VAT tax on everything you buy, which is a regressive tax that hits the poor more than it hits the rich. The Scandinavians are into soaking the poor, and they don't make any bones about it. Their point is, if you want this package of benefits, we have the right to take half your stuff. Now, co contrast this with the deceitful way in which people like AOC and we're not going to go after, they don't even have the guts to say they're going to go after the upper middle class. They go, we're going to go after the billionaires. There are 300 billionaires in America. <laughs> we're going to go after the billionaires. So in other words, what you have in, in American, well, Scandinavian socialism is, I call it unification socialism. Let's, everybody's in the same boat. American socialism is division socialism. Let's take society, divide it as many ways we can, intensify hatred toward the group that is being demonized. So intensify hatred, for example, of the black against the white, the illegal against the legal, the, the, the poor against the rich, the gay against the straight. And so what you get is this thing that's now called intersectionality which I guess is a marriage of all these different types of divisions. I want to suggest that is the very and exact opposite of what they do in Scandinavia. They don't do that. Now, very interestingly, there is one place in the world where all these features of American socialism are in fact present. And that country is indeed Venezuela. I just want to tell you a little bit about the Venezuelan story because you'll see how closely with almost eerie closeness, it parallels the American story. First, when Hugo Chavez came to power in 1998, he campaigned as a third party man. He was essentially Venezuela's Obama. He said, I'm not a leftist. He was interviewed. He said, I'm not a socialist. No, no, no. He said, if you don't like what I'm doing, throw me out. I'm a moderate. His slogan, I kid you not, was hope and change. Hope and change. Uh, Hugo Chavez only started the, the Socialist Party in Venezuela in 2007, eight years after he came in. It was a bit of a long-term plan, but the moment he did it, he started labeling everything in Venezuela ma made in socialism. So you walk into the grocery store, you pick up a carton of milk, made in socialism. Now, the way that Hugo Chavez created what happened in Venezuela, what's happened in Venezuela since. The first thing he did is he embraced identity politics. The first thing he said was, notice, I am not a white man. I am of indigenous stock. So right away, in a country that is very multiracial, 
that had not been free of racial problems, but racial problems were not in the forefront, Hugo Chavez began to, to racialize everything. He even began to attack the, the tradition of Miss Venezuela because he said too many of the models are European. He said, look, we have two of our Venezuelan ships that are named after Venezuelan beauty queens. He stripped those names off and he replaced them with two uh, black women who supposedly raised the Venezuelan hero, Simon Bolivar. What I'm getting at is Hugo Chavez dived right into identity politics. One of the great villains for Hugo Chavez, Columbus. How familiar is that? Go to Scandinavia and start denouncing Columbus. Nobody will know what you're talking about. They don't get it. They have nothing against Columbus. They just, the only regret about Columbus is that he wasn't named Sven. <laughs> the second thing that Hugo Chavez did, confiscate guns. Hugo Chavez goes, guns are very dangerous. The citizenry does not need guns. They had all kinds of clever commercials to convince people to voluntarily turn in their guns before the guns are forcibly confiscated. And the moment that they were forcibly confiscated, the state began to unleash its force against the population. How? Not just using the military, but using street thugs that are called colectivos. This is Venezuela's answer to Antifa. These street thugs are former criminals, do-nothings, losers. Anybody who signs up with the regime and says, I'm willing to be your henchman, okay, go out and beat people who are protesting against the regime. And the good news, you have guns, which we're going to give you, and they don't. So the confiscation of guns was planned as a means of disarming the population to strengthen the state and its hold on the population. Now, if you turn the news, you see, oh, you know, Venezuela's starving. Everybody's running away to Colombia. Nobody has any food to eat. And to a degree, that's true. Debbie has an aunt in Venezuela. She has no food. She goes into the grocery store. It's completely empty except for 300 bottles of ketchup, <laughs> which tellingly say made in socialism. It now becomes a kind of stark reminder of what socialism does. But the interesting thing is not everybody in Venezuela is like that. The so-called Chavistas, the people who are in Chavez's regime, are living high on the hog. They get bouquets of flowers delivered to their house. They go eat in the Buddha bar in Caracas. Uh, the richest person in the country is the daughter of the now late Hugo Chavez. Net worth of his daughter, according to Forbes, over $2 billion. $2 billion. And all the Venezuelan generals are living high on the hog. And notice that, by the way, this is very familiar here. Look at the way that in this country, people like the Clintons, Al Gore. Al Gore has made $200 million. Now, look, I have never been one to attack people for being rich. I've never attacked Nancy Pelosi for being rich. Her husband is a very successful businessman. That's how she's got a lot of money. God bless her. I'm talking about people who make millions of dollars on a government salary. How do you pull that one off? Look at the Bidens. Look at the Biden family racket. It doesn't just involve Hunter Biden. Follow Biden's own look-alike brother. Look at the way that guy makes money. All these guys make money from politics, and a lot of it, a lot of it. We're talking about 40, 50, 100, 200 million dollars. Now I ask you this. Name one Scandinavian politician who has gone from zero to $100 million on a government salary. I defy you to do it. No Scandinavian can do it. It's never happened in Scandinavia. They don't do that. 
but they do it in America, and they do it in Venezuela. So the parallel between Venezuelan and American socialism is actually a little eerie. It's eerily close, which means if we go in that direction, that's where we're gonna end up. I was gonna talk about the morality of capitalism, but I, I'm almost out of time. So I'm gonna say a word about it and then close, because I also wanna leave time for questions. And so let me talk about capitalism for just a second. If you were a capitalist in the 1970s, let's say you were running Procter & Gamble, what is it that you actually did? The answer is, you were essentially an administrator. Basically, you ran a company, you supervised payroll, you dealt with human resources, expansion of markets, the normal things a CEO does. You ultimately responded to consumer demand. But what I want to suggest is that in the last 20 to 25 years, we have been living through what happens only a few times in history, a kind of capitalist churn, which is to say a kind of second communications revolution. The first communications revolution, by the way, gave us the telegraph, the telephone, the car, the airplane, the electric light. And that happened between the 1880s and about the 1910s. And notice that historians demonize that. It was the Gilded Age as if all you had were greedy, selfish guys running around. But in reality, those greedy, selfish guys were named Henry Ford. These are the people who actually created the amenities that have made American, think of what American freedom would mean without the automobile. By the way, Woodrow Wilson, the first progressive president, hated the automobile. He was against automobiles. He says, I don't see the point of an automobile. I mean, this is, now, this is a mentality that needs to be highlighted, by the way. The socialist mentality, I call it the argument from personal incredulity. Because it's, it goes sort of like this. Here am I, Woodrow Wilson, the former president of Princeton, sitting in my office and twiddling my thumbs. And here twiddling my thumbs at a time when the car appears to be about as fast as the fastest horse and buggy. I personally can't think of any good reasons that, should, that we should have cars. I don't know a single advantage that's brought by cars. So cars should not exist. Now this seems very archaic. This is how socialists talk now about other things. You'll have some guy, you know, professor of romance languages at Chapman University. <laughs> he goes, here sitting in my office and twiddling my thumbs, I really don't see the point of fracking. Why do we have to dig in the ground and go vertically and then go horizontally? What's the point of it? I don't really get it. Therefore, fracking should not exist. So what we have here is a mentality that basically says, because I don't know, therefore there's no good reason. Now, consider something like the iPhone. And I could give a lot of examples, and I do, but what's interesting to me about the iPhone is that nobody wrote an email, well, if they did, they couldn't send it on a phone, could they, to Steve Jobs who said, listen, here's a great idea. We really have a lot of consumer demand for a, a phone that can do texting, that can do email, that takes amazing photos. No one did that. Steve Jobs anticipated the demand and built, totally built, the iPhone before you knew, 
that you couldn't live without it. <laughs> now, what is that worth compared to a desk guy at Procter & Gamble? So people say, well, all this money is flowing to these tech moguls. Come to the guy who runs Walmart, Ilhan Omar. 23,000 for the ordinary worker, 23 million for the guy who runs Walmart. Do you have any idea what it is to run Walmart? Do you have any idea what it means to deal with thousands of producers all over the world with factories in China and India to negotiate all those products to appear on a single shelf under perfect inventory control at a price so low that mom and pop stores that build 10 things can't beat Walmart at any one of them? Walmart beats everybody across the board. How do you pull that off? Well, see, what's interesting to me is that all the people who say that the entrepreneur is doing nothing and the workers are doing everything, my solution to them is really simple. Listen, you don't have to pay 23 million to the guy who runs Walmart. Why don't the workers all quit? All the $23,000 a year guys quit, come together, you do all the work anyway, start your own Walmart. You'll save 23 million straight out, which you can split among yourselves. Notice, no one in the history of the world has ever done that. All the great union who sit with the management go, you know, you're, you guys do nothing. All you're doing, is, all you're doing is looting all the wealth, stealing all the profits. We do all the work. It's like, okay, great idea. Why don't you guys all quit? Do it yourself. Start your own Ford Motor Company. But they don't do it because while Marx presented the capitalist as supplying only one thing, capital, which by the way, in today's world, most entrepreneurs do not supply capital. Steve Jobs did not supply his own capital to start or run Apple. They get their capital from a bank or from a venture capital firm. But what entrepreneurs do supply is something Marx never mentioned. They supply the idea for the business. They supply the organization of the business, and they take all the risk, all the risk. Not some, all. And so if Starbucks loses money, let's just say for six months, they can't go to their employees and go, hey guys, listen, you guys better start cutting back and getting all those tattoos because you're not gonna get paid for six months. <laughs> can't do it. They made a contract with them, you have to pay. And so the worker has essentially decided, I want no risk. I want a fixed payment to come to me every two weeks with benefits, and Starbucks goes, okay, we'll shake on it, but when there's money left over at the end, it's gonna go to Howard Schultz and the guys who put all this stuff together. So to me, that is the, the justice of capitalism. In fact, we often keep hearing about democratic, democratic socialism. Capitalism is the most democratic system of all. Why? Because in, because in politics, we vote every four years, maybe every two years, that's it. We have no other hold on our government than that. Think about it. And if you listen to the Democrats, you keep hearing things like Elizabeth Warren will say, you know, we want to control our healthcare system. We want to give it back to the people. What government asset right now gives the people any control at all? What control do you have right now over the post office? What control do you have over the DMV? What control does the ordinary Englishman have over the British National Health Service? Zero, none. So this giving it to the people is a complete fiction. The people actually have no power. But under capitalism, you do. Your power ultimately is with your labor, with your dollar. And you have to vote every day. 
People say, well, big government's so dangerous. Big government, big government is dangerous. Big capitalism, big business doesn't have anything close to the power of big government. Let's just say that a tycoon in big business hates you. Hates you. What can he do to you? At the most, you don't shop in his store. That's it. Even if, he, even if, even if Jack, whoever Jack is, throws me off Twitter, There are other ways to get the message out. Jack has a limited control over me. The people who have more control over me are the people who, well, the meter maid gives me a ticket. Nothing I can do about that. That person has real power over me. It's confiscatory power. All government is like that. So socialism is very dangerous because it steals from us a really important liberty. Not just the liberty, by the way, to keep our stuff but the liberty to live our lives. What's happening if you watch the socialists today, they don't just go after your money. They really want to turn you into a kind of worm. Look at this interesting case about the Christian baker in Colorado. You better bake a cake. All this sort of doctrine is coming down from on, and the doctrine itself is incoherent, by the way. For years, gay activists told us, listen, you know, if you're gay, you can't change. Don't, don't try any kind of conversion therapy. It's horrible because if you're born gay, you're gay. That's it. And suddenly we get the transsexuals who say the exact opposite. Not only, not only is your sexual preference a matter of choice, your gender itself is a matter of choice. I want to be a woman. <laughs> let's think about this for a minute. I mean, let's take it further. What if I were to say, I want to be a toad? <laughs> a toad. Now notice, I want to parallel the argument accurately here. I don't want to just be lied about it. So I'm going to further say, I'm not trying to become a toad. I've always been a toad. <laughs> I am a toad inhabiting a human body. It's a case of psychology trumping biology. Now, now let's pause again, because I know people are going to jump into These aren't really very legitimate comparisons and analogies. In the one case, you're talking about two genders. In the other case, species. Gender is a social construct, remember? Species is a social construct. Don't you think that starting with Linnaeus and classifications, people came up with the idea there's no firm line dividing species. Species evolved from one into the other. So the analogy is actually much tighter. And the point we're trying to get at here is, so you have all this craziness, and fine, let's debate it. But we can't debate it. Why? Because you have to be a certain way. If you don't bake, bake a cake, they're going to sue you. And then if you go all the way to the Supreme Court and you win, what happens? They sue you again. Why? Not they're after you. They're happy to ruin your life. They want to scare everybody else. They want everybody else to know that if you go against the socialist cultural agenda, we will destroy you just the same way we're destroying that guy. So this is why it seems to me not just our economic, but all our liberties are at stake. And so we're in a big fight. And we're in a big fight with, I must say, a rather unusual leader of the anti-socialist camp, Trump. Trump.
Now, this is probably not, if the Republicans were to sit down and take a survey in advance about the kind of person that they wanted to lead the cause, they might not have picked Trump. He's kind of come out of nowhere. But the guy is an unbelievable mud wrestler. <laughs> and he enjoys it. I sometimes say that taking on Trump is a little bit like wrestling with a pig, because not only does it get everyone dirty, but the pig likes it. <laughs> and I think what makes Trump interesting to me is that he, he embodies the capitalist spirit also. He's an entrepreneur. He came up the capitalist way. This is part of, by the way, what makes him incomprehensible to a different political or intellectual, even media mindset. They don't understand how a capitalist thinks. How a capitalist thinks. To me, if America were to go in the socialist direction, it would be slowly stripping away the very liberties that I, as an immigrant, came here to enjoy. And therefore, I'm committed to using my energy my creativity, so we're doing a film for next year, United States of Socialism, to put a spotlight, put a spotlight on socialism. Abraham Lincoln said, the fiery trial through which we pass will light us in honor or in dishonor down to the latest generation. Seems to me this is our moment of trial and how we come out of it will ultimately reflect on whether we deserve the America that has meant and given so much to us and to which we now owe something in return. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you much. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, guys, we, we have some time for questions. And, um, you know, we're, let's establish a little bit of a rule, which is that if you actually have a question that's critical of me, I kind of want you to come to the front, because I think it'll make our conversation more interesting. Uh, so questions for anyone, but uh, critics can kind of jump the line a little bit. You can sort of be, go illegal on us for right now, <laughs> jump the line, and uh, <clears throat> swim the Rio Grande, if you will, um, and I'll be happy to uh, take your question. All righty. Um, what's our plan of action here, guys? Uh, did you want to, okay, let's get started. Okay, I think our microphone is here, so if you don't mind, kind of come this way. Right, because so it'll give a little bit of order to what we're doing. So if you have a question, please head to the back and uh, line up behind my colleague Teddy over here. Um, and uh, we got our first question right here. All right. Well, Dinesh, thank you for coming to Chapman. I'm not a critic. Um, my question surrounds the, the fake news media. You know, I watch these Democrat debates, whether it's fake news CNN or as Mark Levin likes to call it, MSLSD. They don't challenge these people. <laughs> They don't challenge these people on these really simple topics like socialism. You'll have Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren go up there and just spew nonsense 
without being challenged, um, as conservatives and Republicans, what's the best way for us to fight back against the corrupt fake news? The very best way to fight back is to create your own alternative news outlets. And, um, and, and I don't just mean, I'm not just talking about trying to create networks and newspapers, but rather I'm also talking about things like a young people's comedy channel. Uh, because if you got a hundred young comedians in their teens who were completely politically uninhibited and absolutely politically incorrect, and they created a web channel, it would become one of the biggest websites in the world. And in fact, it would destroy political correctness almost all by itself. Uh, if it, the key to it is it has to be first class, and it has to be done at the highest level. So option one, create your own. Option two, um, learn to decode what you see in the media. It's almost like we now have to all become intense, just like the way we learn critically to read a novel uh, in college. We have to apply the same critical intelligence to the media. We have to realize that, you know, Trump says that the Democratic Party, <clears throat> Trump says that the media is an arm of the Democratic Party. I say the opposite. The Democratic Party is an arm of the media. The media drives the agenda. If you want to know why Republican politicians, generally good guys, behave like wimps, the short answer, they're terrified by the media. They know the media has the power to humiliate and destroy. So what you have to do is learn to critically read. If you read in the New York Times something like this, there's a lot of indications that X is true. You have also got to learn to read. What that means is that there are also a lot of indications that X is false. Their statement can be taken two ways, and they're pitching it one way for you to take it that way. Um, now, ultimately, the power of the media is in our minds. It's in our heads. And so we can reduce the power of the media by reducing the power of the media in us. In part, whenever we see, let's look at CNN. How many people right now, at this hour, are watching CNN? The answer? Fewer people than follow me on Twitter. Fewer people. And not, that's not even get close to how many I have on Facebook. And that's an entire channel that employs all kinds of people worldwide, is in every airport. So, and yet when CNN says something, we all jump. Oh, CNN, oh my gosh, you know, Jim Acosta. Now, ridiculing those people is, is actually excellent. Uh, and, I mean, nothing gave me more pleasure than just seeing the absolutely constipated faces on the part of Wolf Blitzer, John King, on election night. Probably, for me, the greatest emotional benefit of Trump's election is simply going to be to watch their faces. I don't even care about his tax plan. I don't care about Iran. I just want to see that look that basically says everything I've been fighting for is worthless. Um, so, the media. Yes, it's, um, it's a problem, but it's a problem I think we can overcome over time. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Dinesh, for being here. And uh, I'm Sunny Meager. I am also an international student from Hyderabad, India. Sir, my question is, uh, it's a 
bit difficult question, but since California is a sanctuary state, so d what do you think if a uh, sanctuary state, is it a form of slavery or a plantation? Because in 18th century, uh, Andrew Jackson had slaves and plantations. Today, the California, the, the Democrats of California are slaves and plantations in the form of sanctuary cities or sanctuary state. So what is your opinion on that? Is it sanctuary city, uh, uh, plantation, or is it going in the way of socialism? Well, to me, the problem, the sanctuary city is a symbol of something that is very bad, and that is open lawlessness in a country with rule under law, right? There are ways to change the immigration. I have all kinds of problems with the immigration laws. You've probably got a, a fair amount of exposure to them. Our immigration laws are a mess. Um, they need to be fixed. But it doesn't matter whether they need to be fixed because until they're fixed, they have a mechanism to fix them. The bottom line of it is you don't get to jump the line. That's lawlessness. And not only is it lawlessness, but those of us who come from countries far away, this jumping of the line hurts us more than it hurts anybody else. It hurts legal immigrants standing in line from a long distance away who can't jump a fence and can't swim the Rio Grande. It hurts us much more than it hurts native-born Americans because we, our lives are hanging by a thread and these jerks jump ahead of us. And it doesn't matter that they're looking for a better life. We are too. Their lives don't come more than ours. And you know that this aspect, of immigration is never highlighted by the media. In fact, the whole move of the media is to conflate the legal with the illegal, to say that Trump is against immigrants. Trump's not against immigrants. In fact, illegal immigrants aren't immigrants at all. Um, this sleight of hand is, is a political deception, and we of all people should be alert to it. So the sanctuary city is a is a desecration of the rule of law, and for that reason alone, it should be dismantled. Hi, good evening, Mr. D'Souza. Thank you for being here tonight and talking on such an important issue. Uh, my question is this, reflecting on Trump's presidencies thus far, in your opinion, what is his greatest accomplishment and what is his greatest failure in the last three years? Good question, what is Trump's greatest failure and what is his greatest success? Uh, his failure, I think, is um, really simple. He should have fired Comey on day one. Yeah. A very, a very costly mistake because not having done that, Comey unleashed Mueller. The whole Mueller thing could have been avoided. In fact, Trump has not had control of his own Justice Department for three out of his four years. He has had his own Justice Department, in a sense, in mutiny against him, and, he has no, and if he were to lift a finger to intervene, they would say obstruction of justice. So think of a president being in this position. This is not normal, by the way. Eric Holder openly said, I'm Obama's wingman. He, he saw the Justice Department as the wing of the administration doing its bidding. And part of its bidding, by the way, was going after me. But that's another story. Um, so, uh, Trump's greatest success, well, I was tempted to say it's fixing the court, a task that is underway but incomplete. To me, Trump's greatest success 
is his unquenchable bravery. It is. Um, it is by far his best quality. Um, it's not that he is somehow immune to it. I, I know from personal knowledge that it gets to him. It's hard. Um, but the truth of it is, here's a guy who recognizes, as Lincoln did, and people say, oh, Trump is, uh, you know, uh, tr Trump is creating all these divisions. He's behaving in this abnormal way. So did Lincoln. Lincoln was not an abnormal man, and he was not an immoderate man. He was a moderate man in an immoderate situation. When Lincoln came to Washington, he noticed the Democratic Party had gone berserk. I mean, a Democratic Congressman, Preston Brooks, went into Republican Senator Charles Sumner's office and physically beat him with a cane. That's not normal politics. So Lincoln realized, I can't do things the way that they're normally done because I'm not dealing with a situation that's normal. I think if Reagan were alive today, he would recognize. He might not know how to handle, but he would recognize the abnormality of the situation. Trump does totally. Trump recognizes that this is not normal. Think of all the things that are said about Trump. He's a dictator. Really? If he was a dictator, why can't I turn on CNN? If Mussolini were ruling the place, he'd send some black shirts or brown shirts, black shirts. They would beat the heck out of Jim Acosta. His, you know, his fetal expression would be unrecognizable. The whole place would be shut down. That's how dictators behave. Trump has been acting in a perfectly, in a perfectly normal way. What has he done that's outside the margins? Now, he's an outside the margins guy. True. But his bravery, I would single that out as his distinctive quality. Okay. Thank you for speaking, huge fan. In 1986, Ronald Reagan signed the Immigration Reform and Control Act. This bill gave amnesty to most illegal immigrants and also made it illegal to knowingly hire illegal immigrants and produce financial penalties for organizations that hired illegal immigrants. This bill also produced what were called Reagan Democrats who switched over and voted for Ronald Reagan. These same Reagan Democrats were also Democrats who voted for Obama but then voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Unfortunately, we never followed through and enforced the law. Both Democrats and Republicans have benefited off the backs of first slave labor and now illegal labor. This has caused me to abandon my initial position of building a wall and deporting people. How can we expect foreign nationals from other countries to obey the law when we who govern and produce laws do not do so ourselves? Would given amnesty once again produce Trump Democrats and are Republicans willing to pay the price of our own ignorance? As somebody who worked for Ronald Reagan, how can we call ourselves conservatives in a Republican party that is anything but that? That is, I'm sorry to say at the end, that is what? Anything but that. That is what? Anything but that. Anything but that. Oh, is anything but that. Oh, sorry, okay, got it. My own position on this, on immigration, has changed a little bit. Um, in my youth, I was supportive of the Reagan amnesty. Because, number one, we have a lot of illegals here. Number two, I don't see any possibilities of, of effective deportation. How would you even do that? So I thought, let's make some sort of a pact. Um, and Reagan, who was an optimist, always looking, always expecting goodwill from the other side. And sometimes getting it, as with Gorbachev. But in this one, he kind of got suckered. Because he kept his side of the bargain 
and the left reneged on its side of the bargain. See, you can have a generous immigration policy and let a lot of people in if you enforce the law. So to me, the wall is not in opposition to a pro-immigration policy. It is, in fact, the necessary prerequisite to one. Other countries are generally pretty open about who they want. You want to go to Australia? They'll say, Dinesh, you're a nice guy, you're a very good writer, but we don't need writers. We need nurses. That's who we're going to take. Go go to nursing school and then reapply. Um, these countries, Canada, Australia, are blatant about who they want. They look for people that will help out the country's needs. We don't even consider that at all. Um, I was speaking at Stanford, I guess, uh, months ago, and everyone was in, uh, apoplectic about the wall. Dinesh, what about this wall? I go, guys, you at Stanford have a much bigger wall than Trump can even dream of building. You don't see it because any idiot can walk onto the Palo Alto campus and roam around. So you don't think, where's the wall? Where's the wall, Nish? Well, I'll tell you where the wall is. It's in the Stanford admissions office, right? That's the wall that decides who gets to be a full member of the Stanford community, who gets to be credentialed by Stanford, who gets to have that Stanford stamp or degree that's going to make your life a lot better from that moment on. Now, then I asked the students, I said, okay, this wall is so high and so impenetrable that I bet you cannot name one, one person in the history of the university who has effectively climbed the wall. Not one person has ever sneaked into Stanford, gone to classes for four years, and made off with a Stanford degree illicitly. <laughs> Can you name one such person in the entire history of this university? You can't. You have the biggest wall, and all of you are in favor of it because it protects you. And it, it gives value to your Stanford degree, and you will ruthlessly crush and support the destruction of anybody. Look at these little guys. These, look at all these people trying to pay money to get their kids into college. Why was there big outrage? Why are they all facing jail time? Because they tried to jump the wall. <laughs> they were caught jumping the wall. No, no, no. So, bottom line, we need immigrants, and we need walls. And actually, the two of them go quite well together. Okay, next question. Hi, Mr. D'Souza. Um, one uh, reality that we face in America that's impossible to ignore is the rising political violence that we see, both on extreme right and extreme left, with Antifa, with groups like Proud Boys. Um, and we see places like Portland that almost exemplify what a civil war could look like if it came back to the United States. A lot of people feel like... Um, the possibility of a civil war is something that's real, that could actually happen. Other people say that's completely just emotion. We look outside, the sun is still shining, we still get along in our daily lives. What is your stance on the possibility of a second like, armed conflict? The kind of um, street fighting that we see sometimes um, on campus and sometimes um, in cities like Portland to me, is less reminiscent of the Civil War than it is of uh, Europe in the 1920s. This is the time of the early rise of fascism, where the black shirts, the brown shirts, would fight with their political opponents. They would have sticks. They would beat each other up. Um, so that, to me, is the closest uh, parallel. A civil war, uh, I think, is, is, is unlikely, although I do think that some of its preconditions, which is the secession of the American mind, People who see it's one sign of, of the fact that the country is, 
is no longer the United States of America is when people can see the same facts and come to opposite conclusions. And we've seen that repeatedly. We've seen it with the Kavanaugh hearings. We saw it over Trump. Um, people who have the same access to information, the same data, who are firmly convinced that their set of facts is true and the other set of people are not only mistaken, but are actually downright evil. Are downright evil for doing what they do. So that's, that's a sign of genuine polarization. Now obviously, you can't have secession as we did in the 18, in 1860 because we don't have, this is not a contiguous north versus south. Um, I think if it ever came to a real civil war, probably our side would do pretty well since we have all the guns. <laughs> Um, but now, by the way, if, if you're listening on Twitter, Jack, I mean that facetiously. Don't start saying I'm a hater who's promoting hate. Um, this is part of the, you know, so what's dangerous is not only do you have this sort of element of violence, but it's combined with stupidity. Stupidity and violence is a very dangerous combination uh, because um, someone who, want, who should be arguing with you can't argue because there's nothing in their brain. And so what, what, what happens is they, they just have these emotions of rage. And I, I see this on campus. And then they literally start running outside the room because they're incapable of dealing with their emotions. Um, and so this is a bad sign. Um, bottom line of it is we're not in a good place but I think the way to get to a better place is to enforce the law, enforce it evenly. If we adopt fair rules, we can actually disagree as a country. I'm not looking to somehow reunify the United States. Frankly, I don't care that much about that. But I do care about the rule of law. I do care about the Constitution. Uh, I do care about the fact that justice should apply equally around, across the aisle. If you're going to put me in jail for eight months for exceeding the campaign finance law, put Rosie O'Donnell in jail. She did that five times by her own admission. So, so I'll start by getting back to that America. Okay, let's take, I'm sorry, I don't think we'll get to everybody. Let's take, if we may, three more questions and then I want to close it out, okay? All right. I say Trump, you say 2020. Trump! 2020. Trump! 2020. Awesome. Yeah, Denise, thank you so much for being here. You know, explaining the difference between socialism and communism. We really, really appreciate your voice of the conservativeness in this nation. Thank you. So my, uh, my name is Amy Fan West. I'm running for Congress for the 47th District. And I want to say um, what you shed light on today regarding the baker, how they made an example of him to bring fear to the conservative and to put them in place and to uh, uh, snipe in their spirit and their fighting spirit. Um, I came from a communist regime in Vietnam. And uh, in our village, we are fishermen. So when we fish, we keep. And then we sailed off to have roof over our heads. So what happened is when the communists took over, they promised to take care of us. And they promised to be the better for everyone. And uh, what happened was they, whatever we make uh, fishing, we give it to them. And we have nothing to feed our family or the uh, sell it off for the roof over our heads. 
And uh, when people in my village complain that they're hungry, uh, what the communism did, the communists did, was they have always come out of the village, and then they made an example of that complainer and bury him alive. So I just feel like what they're doing now in America, like you're saying with that baker, is to crush our spirit, our fighting spirit. That's what they did, example of those complainer. They crushed our spirit in our village. So now... My question to you is, what warning do you have for the younger generation who was pushing for socialism and embracing socialism, communism, and thinking that's great? What are your warning to them? Well, the first thing I want to say uh, in response to your moving statement is that the, what we see in this country, if you think of a group like Antifa in its own way, it's not trying to scare me. I just spoke in Portland. Antifa came, I mean Antifa, really. These are basically overgrown kids in mom's basement, you know. They're like, mom, you know, where's my Halloween costume? I gotta go fight some Nazis. <laughs> really, Edgar, who, who's the Nazi you're gonna go fight? Well, you know, it's this Indian guy. An, an Indian Nazi? Oh yeah, he's a brown-skinned white supremacist, Dinesh D'Souza. He's coming to town. I'm really scared. <laughs> Good God. But they're, they're not after me. What they're trying to do is terrorize their fellow students who live there and tell them, we can, we can make your life miserable. You, what you said about Vietnam, and by the way, it's so important that people know this, uh, the left suppresses And they take it out of their textbooks, they diminish it in Wikipedia. We're facing a real attempt, Orwell saw this, of an erasure of the truth. Um, there's a beautiful, powerful scene in 1984 where Winston, the protagonist, is being tortured, and Big Brother, his interrogator, is trying to get him to admit that two plus two is five. The idea is to make him say what the party believes. And Winston won't do it. He's like, listen, you've taken my family, you've taken my money, You've taken my dignity. He goes, if there's one freedom I have left, it's the freedom to insist that two plus two is in fact four. And so what do they do? They put him in a dark room, they turn off all the lights, sensory deprivation, no food. He begins to grow weak. They, they learn that he's afraid of rats, and so they release rats into the room, they put rats on his face, they terrify him, they intimidate him, and finally he breaks and he goes, okay, two plus two is five. Are you satisfied? Go. And Big Brother says, no, no, Winston. You can't go home. Why? Because in your mind, you still think that two plus two is four. You're only saying that two plus two is five because you think that's what I want you to say. We want you to believe that two plus two is five. Back to the torture chamber. So this is the kind, ultimately socialism is control. Ultimately it's tyranny, the tyranny over our pocketbooks. See, for Lincoln, your economic freedom and your civic freedom were the same. That's why Lincoln defines slavery as you work, I eat. That, Lincoln says that's the credo of the Democratic Party. Think of how it's still true. You work, I eat. And Lincoln says the credo of the Republican Party is that the hand that makes the corn gets to put the corn into its own mouth. That's the credo of the Republican Party, even now, even now. 
So my message to the young people is that your liberties are far more endangered than mine. Uh, I'm actually in the public sphere. I'm, my wife will tell you, there are very few things that inhibit me in the public sphere. I don't care. One reason I can make movies, I'm not in Hollywood. They don't want to give me the Oscars, I don't want an Oscar. I hate the Oscars. I hate those people. Uh, why would I want to be esteemed by a bunch of freaks? So they have very, when, when you have that kind of liberty, no one can get you, really. Um, but when you're trying to make your way in the world, you're a young screenwriter, then they can get you. You're a young student who wants to finish your PhD and get tenure, they can destroy you. So you're actually very vulnerable. And when you fight for your liberties, you're not fighting for some abstract idea, the American dream, the rah, rah, rah. No, you're actually fighting for your own life. Uh, next question. Um, hello. Hello. Um, I'm so glad that I got to hear you speak tonight. Um, I have a question about the liberal media that you were talking about earlier. Um, something that kind of went unmentioned was who is controlling this media, um, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. Um, what are your thoughts on the Jews and their control of the media, and particularly the liberal media, and I also maybe the financial system? Um, well, I mean, I guess my thoughts are that this is a bit of a nonsense uh, question, I'm, I'm sorry to say, because, look, first of all, the vast majority of Jews in this country are secular. They're secular. So what are you attacking? The fact that they were born Jewish? You think that being born Jewish, even if they aren't following the code of Abraham, means anything other than they're just people in our society? Look, the media is driven by an ideological vector. Uh, I was at a think tank called the American Enterprise Institute, right-wing think tank full of Jews, on the right side. If it were the case that Everybody falls on one side, and all the Catholics are on one camp, and all the Protestants are on Then we can discuss, has religion got something to do with this? But the truth of it is there are lots of Catholics on both sides, and lots of Protestants, and lots of Jews. Um, I read somewhere a crazy notion that somehow impeachment is a Jewish nonsense. What's going on here with the media? Who's driving it? I'll tell you who's driving it. There is a group of people in our society who have always considered themselves to be the smartest and the people to whom others should pay deference. In other countries, this was the remnant of aristocracy. We, haven't, we don't have aristocracy in our country, but we do have smarter-than-thou people. And they think, I'm the smartest. And it's obvious. And these people are liberally sprinkled in three fields, academia, the media, and now somewhat surprisingly, the deep state. And by the deep state, by the way, I'm not applying some hocus pocus. I'm talking about actual police institutions of the government, the IRS, the DOJ, the FBI, the CIA. These institutions are supposed to be neutral, and they're not. So the deep state works in, in consort with the Democratic Party, which works in consort with the media. It, and it's not that they conspire. They don't have to make phone calls to each other. They're more like birds in flying formation. Notice how birds move in the same direction 
in, an, in a certain sort of vector, no one is actually telling every bird what to do. The birds are moving independently, but they have the same proclivities. And what's their proclivity? This is what their proclivity is. In a capitalist society, they are very offended that entrepreneurs who are not like them enjoy the greatest rewards. America is an entrepreneurial society, and the people who move up the fastest, up the ladder, are entrepreneurs because they make new things. The people we're talking about don't know how to make things. They know how to make words. Kind of like me. I know how to make words. Well, I also know how to make movies. So I actually do make some products. But the bottom line of it is there is, what is, unifies these people is a deep sense of envy and hatred over the way in which a meritocratic capitalist society parcels rewards, and the rewards are determined not by some abstract standard. They're determined ultimately by the votes of the people themselves. Who made Jeff Bezos into the, one of the richest two men in the world? You did, because you, you sign up for Amazon Prime. Right? You give him $79 in advance or whatever that number is at the beginning. That's what enabled him to do what he does. Now, he's a genius. This is how he's a genius, by the way. People say, well, he didn't invent anything. True, he didn't. But what he figured out, when he came up with, when Bezos came up with Amazon Prime, everyone told him you can't do it because he's promising people that he will give you whatever you order at your door in two days. Do you realize you can buy an elephant on Amazon? He's going to give you an elephant at your door in two days. <laughs> How? So all the Amazon people said, Bezos, what, FedEx? FedEx the elephant, really? What would that cost? So, and what Bezos said was, no, it's not like that. You're, you're thinking wrong. Here's what it is. We want a million of our customers to give us $79 in advance. Then we have $79 million. Then we build 79 warehouses all over the country so we don't have to FedEx the elephant. If order the elephant here at Chapman, the elephant is going to come from San Diego. In other words, we will drive it to your local. So Bezos had to figure some important stuff out. But at the end of the day, it is the ruthless efficiency of Amazon and the delight, it, the ease of the thing that makes us make just, so think about it. There's so much inequality created by Amazon, but where's the social injustice? Who's been ripped off? Every dollar that Jeff Bezos got, somebody voluntarily and happily gave him because they were able to get that thing that you couldn't find anywhere in the neighborhood and you got it in 48 hours at your door and you paid one third less for it. So. What I'm getting at is capitalism delivers the goods, but there's a group of people who can't make the goods, who hate the capitalists for delivering the goods, and want the capitalists to answer to their command. That's what drives the left in this country, a combination of envy and hatred. And it's deeply embedded in the media, it's deeply, think of academia. Academics live pretty well, but they don't live as, see, you can think of some, you know, professor of sociology at Bowdoin College. He's living pretty well. He's driving a second-hand BMW, but it is a BMW. But what makes him really mad is that there's some fat Rotarian with a big gold chain on his chest who makes like $1 million a year selling term life insurance or pest control. So this is the rage of the professorial and the media class, and they take it out. They're very good at what they do, 
And what they're good at is humiliation, personal destruction, insults. They're very clever at it. You have to admire them from a distance. Look at the way they stage things. They stage the event. They create the controversy. They plant the evidence. Sort of like, I'm a detective. I plant the drugs. Then I raid the apartment. I kick the door down. The media's there. They take photographs. Whoops, we have drugs. Then I conduct the trial. Then I'm, I'm also the judge. And I also deliver the verdict. Wow. I mean, that's, a, you, that's, that's chutzpah. You've got to give it to them. But at the end of the day, they're more vulnerable than we think. And united and with creativity, and I hope you don't mind that I'm not answering your question at all because it's a dumb question. <laughs> at the end of the day, we can beat them. Thank you all very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you all very much. Thank you. So you want your safe space. The last thing you want is somebody invading your campus. You should always feel like you're right. Freedom is not an abstraction. It affects our happiness and our ability to flourish. It is very seldom that liberty of any kind is lost all at once. It's always lost bit by bit. We have protection of freedom of speech. If we said only things that other people liked, we'd have no reason to protect it. Notice that when Jefferson looks for a source of our rights, can only find one, and that's the creator. We are a country that respects religious liberty. That key value has been enshrined in our founding documents. We are created equal in the eyes of God, the core principle of democracy. To believe that Islam is a religion of peace is to believe that Muslims throughout history have misunderstood their own religion. Life is the most fundamental right. None of the other rights that are listed in the Bill of Rights actually exist without first the right to life. Free markets fundamentally run on service, not to make everyone's outcomes equal. We are diverse people with diverse skills and diverse talents. Femininity is one of the graces of our world, one of the things that makes life worth living. Feminism has sucked all the joy out of that. They've attacked manliness itself. They've attacked the virtues. Virtue comes from vir, means man. To pretend that a man is a woman, if he believes he is a woman, nobody should be mistreated. But that's not the same thing as requiring that people say objectively untrue things. If I believe I am something that I am not, it does not make me that thing.